This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Anne Gailey. We talk about growing up, what her parents taught her about work ethic and kindness. We talk about studying psychology at UCLA. We talk about the book she wrote called Pornology, which was turned into a feature film called A Nice Girl Like You. We talk about the story structure in television and film and so much more. This is such a wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed having the conversation with Anne Gailey, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Anne Gailey. Anne, thank you for joining me today. Oh my God, thank you for breaking up the monotony of my week. This is awesome. This is very, very exciting. You are such an interesting human being. (laughs) With everything that's happened to you, for you, in your life, it's going to be a great conversation. I don't know why, but when I talk to, and I have to correct myself on the air, when I talk to... Uh, Bradley James, I said we became uh, in each other's circles because of Scott Patterson of Gilmore Girls. Great guy, but that's not who we became in contact with. It was Aaron Zygman who wrote the score for The Notebook and countless other films. He's doing really well. That was a great conversation. Thank you for setting that up. I would almost think that you're a PR person with the way we've met, but you are not. That is just one of, you're just like a social butterfly, so to speak, as a side hobby here. I think that's it. You know, other people, um, I'm definitely a maven, um, yeah. is what people call them. Oh, you know, yeah. if you've read some of um, Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm definitely a connector. And that yes. just naturally happens. So I have some PR skills. It's very <laughs> closely related to storytelling, right? Of course. Um, so it makes sense that every now and then people have called on me to help them with PR. There's I a, like it. There's a common theme I'm finding among top top performers in entertainment and other fields. They're not just like yourself, not just good at one thing. You're really, really remarkable at a lot of things. Writing is your, you know, your main, your main hustle, hobby, not hobby, career, but you're also incredibly, I love that, incredibly great at, at communicating and, and connecting. So I think it's, this is an interesting thing that I've noticed. There's a lot of like, You've, there's a lot of remarkable qualities you have, and I noticed that among top performers. So I'm just I'm just saying it. Um, I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. I love that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Be great because that word communicating made me go back to the beginning of time. I grew up with a mom who didn't speak English, who was Chinese. Really. And I think because I had to translate for her when we moved to the United States at age two, a lot with people for years that I had to become a really good communicator trying to understand a mom who didn't speak my language because she didn't teach me Chinese yeah. and then helping her communicate and get bills paid because my dad was in the Navy. So he'd be gone for nine months on a ship sometimes. So my mom and in some small towns in Texas, some of the times had to, right. you know, navigate. And then with two other little kids, uh, you know, after me, I became the person who would make the phone calls for my parents um, you know, for my mom, at least. So yeah, I think communication was really important from the beginning. Did that, did that grow you up real quick? Maybe it did. I'm also the eldest. So the eldest is always the most responsible, right? (laughs) Amongst the sibling. We do everything. I, I have this memory of a flood in Texas and I was probably about five and my mom and my brother and sister um, and I was walking through the flood. And it was like, you know, up to my thighs. It was really dangerous. Big storm. Yeah. Um, our car had stalled out. 
And I just remember feeling like, oh my gosh, she, you know, I'm the one having to trudge through water as a little kid. And my brother and sister are like, you know, being held and it was so easy for them. That's sort of a metaphor for life, <laughs> for our, our relationship <laughs> in life. How, how often, just for everyone understanding, you traveled a lot as a child because of the military. How often? Yeah, my dad was in the Navy. In the Navy. How often were you guys changing locations? Um, up until high school, you typically change, you know, right. almost every two or three years. Um, and then in high school, I think my dad thought we should probably, you know, stay put because I wanted to go to college and academically. And I was really into sports. So it would be easier if all, most of high school was in place. So after 10th grade, we stayed put. Um, but before that, yeah, I, I was born in Taiwan where my mom and dad met in an illegal gambling den and fell in love. Uh, moved there when I was two to somewhere in the United States, I don't remember. But in the United States, we've lived in Texas, right. um, Long Beach, San Diego. Um, there was a stint in Washington, apparently. Um, so, yeah, we moved around a lot. And then we moved to Turkey when I was uh, in eighth grade. So for eighth and ninth grade, I went to school in Izmir, Turkey. Oh, my goodness. We're going to get to that one. I'm, I have so many questions okay. for you. I want to let's just start with what parents taught you about work ethic and kindness. It's a two part okay. question. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, they never said things. They didn't do that kind of teaching. Like, here's what you should do. You know, it was all role modeling. And my parents were married for 35 years. So, um, and it was a really great marriage. They were really supportive of each other. And there was never fighting. And um, so it was really watching them. My mom is super generous, almost to the point where it's a little bit ridiculous sometimes. Like, oh, you know, we weren't wealthy by any means. We were definitely working class. My dad was a, a Navy chief petty officer. Um, that's enlisted. That's not, you know, the other other kind of officer. Um, right. So the pay is super low. But she had, I remember these pieces of jade and some ruby rings and things like that from Taiwan. Yeah. They were probably less expensive there. And she would just, like, give them away to people. And we're like, why you don't do that? Um, but, you know, even now she, she'll make food for people. We were always the house where a hundred Navy guys, you know, would, yeah. would come over and mom would cook amazing Chinese food for all of them. Oh um, we always had someone, a bachelor or two at the Thanksgiving table. Um, my dad is also just very kind to this day and helpful. And Did she ever give you so a reason? Did she give you a reason why she was giving away know. the jade? <laughs> No, she's sort of a, she can be like an I love Chinese, I love Lucy yeah. at times too, just sort of a little, people love her because she's so wacky, but right. you know, she owned a few restaurants and she would, at her restaurant, she'd always wear almost like ball gowns. <laughs> they were nice restaurants right, um, right. and high heels and she was always dressed and quaffed perfectly, yeah. um, which is the opposite of me. I love sweats and no makeup and <laughs> no high heels. Um, yeah. But that, that's just how she, how she has always been. And so I just, I didn't know there's different. My dad did say when we were older, I do remember this, um, treat others as you would treat yourself. So I, I do live by that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, the traveling you did has made you very worldly. And I'm curious, is there any thoughts that come to mind on the different types of cultures you would encounter between like Texas and California or United States and Turkey? Does anything yeah. come to mind? 
Yeah, I've also spent extensive time in India living in people's homes. I was part of a, a program in 2000 where um, five of us uh, went over to teach other um, people in rural areas about the jobs in the United States and what we did. So I, I'm really familiar with that culture. Yeah. Um, I mean... I would say, I think the best lesson is, you know, you have, everyone might have some xenophobia in them, even me, someone who comes from another culture, uh, you know, from the beginning. And I remember when we were told we were going to Turkey, the, we kids were like, no way. You know, we imagined riding camels and, um, right. <laughs> you know, living in a, a tent in the desert. Sure. Because um, sure. all we knew is what we knew from movies. Right. You know, and we, I was in, you know, seventh grade when we were told we were going to go. And so when we got there, it was interesting because there was so much to love there. You know, the food and the people are kind. There's some scary things too. You know, if we had um, the book, I can't remember the name of it, Midnight Something. It's about a guy, American who's caught with drugs and he, is incarcerated in a Turkish prison. Is it Midnight Run or something like that? Yeah. Anyway, if you're caught with that book, you'd be arrested. Mm. Um, uh, mm. Girls were not supposed to be wearing shorts at that time. Um, it wasn't as westernized as it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there were bombings when we arrived. Five Americans were killed the year before we had to get there. So there was a lot of trepidation too. Um, I knew that probably my little brothers and sisters did it, but my mom and dad knew that. Mm. So we were also, it was somewhere we had to be careful because um, they were sort of in turmoil. We would see marches like the communist party marching down the streets. Um, when we were there, there was a coup d'etat, mm. you know, we were kids. So we were like, Oh, we don't have to go to school. Awesome. <laughs> so you weren't scared. It's a coup d'etat. <laughs> but I mean, the first thing you hear in a coup d'etat is a jet flies over the city so low that your house is rumbling yeah and then it flies back and then back again and i guess that's a warning that you are now you know under martial law the military took over oh my god and then um tanks appeared on our block men with machine guns on every corner they came to the house told us to stay in that you'd be notified when you could leave to get food and come back there was a uh, martial law oh um god. curfews um so yeah, it was. Uh, it's interesting to visit other countries. So Turkey had a lot of turmoil going on, sure. but at the same time, there was such a sense of community. We didn't have television, mm. so when you don't have television, you really um, read a lot and play sports a lot and bond with other people more. I felt like we did that there, yeah. and I think because uh, us Americans were in some way outsiders. We might have bonded more together, but but I found most of the Turkish people we knew to, to be really kind and welcoming. Mm. And what was your reason for it, not wanting to leave? God, it was just that community bond, you know? It was, you know, you go to a high school where you only have maybe 20 kids in each graduating class, mm. and that means there is not enough kids to have, um, you know, cliques. Right. That means that every kid gets to play on the sports team. Um, it it means that you're there's more accountability if you're mean to someone. Um, and I think that was such a special place to be. It was really hard. We didn't want to come back. I almost stayed with friends. My mom and dad were going to allow me to because I played on a basketball team and the coach was willing to, you know, house me with his daughter. Oh, 
but in the end I thought I'd miss my family too much. Yeah. And we came back and, and it was hard to go into a mediocre American high school that was big after that with lots of clicks and peer pressure. And it wasn't really, it took me a while to acclimate. 10th grade. Right, beginning of tenth grade. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you're being a new kid in tenth grade. Yeah, that's really tricky. <laughs> I yeah, and I went to. It wasn't some shishi part of San Diego, and I'll just say it because I haven't been back since, and my parents moved. Um, it was a redneck part of San Diego, yeah. and I mean, KKK headquarters, and as you can see, I'm I'm not white. I'm half Asian, <laughs> half. Mexican. And now I've learned later that my dad is 30% Karankawa, which is a Native American tribe that's now extinct. No way. Um, So I, you know, at that school, I was, I was called chink. I was called wetback. I really, the first year um, was really tough. And I had friends that I had grown up with in, in elementary that were there, but it was like, so like, well, almost like we didn't know each other, you know? And then once I played sports and, and once I saw that, like, I was beating all of them, you know, in science class, because our teacher would put the top um, grades up for every test. Right. And they're like, who is that girl? You know, Ann Korea was my name then. Um, and then I slowly found my own thing. But I never, you know, because in the beginning, it was all the kids who might be considered the losers or the not popular kids who um, were friends with me. So I never dropped those friends. Mm. And that would piss off a lot of the popular kids who had then embraced me because I was in the honor roll group and I was a jock. Um, they were so snobby, but I, I would call them on it. I'm like, Oh my God, you're such a bitch. You're so, you know, why are you so mean to that person? You know, you're, yeah. you're not really that much better than them. Oh my God. And they would respond with, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I was a pretty bitchy group. I was, <laughs> <laughs> but they were on the ba- you know they were right. on the basketball team with me so we hung out you just hang out right with yeah. whoever you do because of what you do in high school when what were you having when did you start having any sort of entertainment dreams or thoughts about the entertainment industry or storytelling <laughs> at all dang i mean i think bradley talked about this a little too i was surprised to hear he didn't have any early dreams either because i thought it was just because i was a minority I mean, my parents were like, lawyer, doctor, teacher. That's, right. that's what you could be. I was like, oh, okay. Um, right, right. <laughs> so I didn't really think of it at all. I just, I, I went to UCLA and I, I knew that I liked psychology. I liked analyzing people and understanding um, people's personalities. So I thought I'd pick that major. And that meant that I um, worked on a helpline. It was a crisis intervention helpline, and I became the student executive director of that. And um, basically, we took calls from people who were depressed or suicidal. And um, we had to have 80 hours of training, and probably 60% of the people who went through the training didn't make it. So it was super strict, and we were supervised by the um, psychologists, the professional ones on campus. Wow. So we'd be in a room every night, you know, um, a few of us waiting for these calls. Right. Um, and you're, you're nervous, even though you have training and you always have a partner with backup and you always have on call one of the professional psychologists so that if you're in a real serious situation, your mm-hmm. partner can call them on the line and start to coach you through it. Um, so I never, I never had anyone who was acutely suicidal, although um, other 
people did. And we did even have one of our counselors ended up um, committing suicide during my, my tenure there after I was executive director, which was so traumatic for everyone. She had already been suicidal and I actually voted to not let her on the helpline hmm. because I didn't, I just didn't think that was safe. Hmm. Um, but other people thought she was healed and this was a good place for her. And, um, but yeah, she ended up jumping from the dorm. So it was serious stuff for us students. It was yeah. a big learning thing for me. Yeah. Um, you know, there were, yeah, no, I'm so curious how you kept yourself yeah. centered through constant yeah, you know, misery. I thought I way. did. Um, you know, I handled a lot of people who were depressed, who were contemplating taking pills maybe, or contemplating suicide, not right there in the moment ready to do it though. And they trained us really well. It's actually listening training. Mm. And if, if I went back and had to name only one thing that probably has made me successful, it would probably be that. Like I learned how to listen to people so I have very strong friendships and a great marital relationship. And with clients, they always say that, like, God, you listen so well. So I can take, like, whether it's a ghostwriting project or editing project or something else, I can really hear what they're trying to say, even though they might not be saying it the way um, they want to, or it's not clear to them or to anyone else. I can pull things out from that training that we got. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really great experience. We also had the occasional person, you know, back then, um, porn on the internet or anywhere else. So you would, I don't know if you were, you might be too young, but people used to call sex lines. They were legal. You call and someone would talk to you and you'd be charged by the minute. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we would get the occasional caller at the helpline. Trying to save a who buck. Who was calling because they didn't want to pay for the set line. But they could hear these like, hi, how are you? Because we're supposed to mimic their voices. You know, that was part of the training. Right. How can we help you? Are you okay? They would totally get off on that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we'd have to deal with that too, which was such, I couldn't believe people would waste the line for that. But it would sometimes take us a while to figure it out. A lot of girls would, I mean, they'd cry. They'd be so upset. I'd just be like, oh, jerks you know got me again <laughs> uh, yeah um, but okay. lately yeah no, i no, just want to say going, later in life i realized um that i was more affected than i thought because a few years god it was like five years after that in my apartment i noticed that every time my phone rang that my heart would go oh. and i finally made the connection i was like oh my god this is conditioned because of helpline the anxiety of waiting for a call that might be from someone who might be trying to kill themselves, hang themselves, yeah. jump off a building. It, so I had to learn to uncondition um, the phone <laughs> response. Yeah. What, yeah. what it, can we talk about this listening training for a moment? I'm curious sure, sure. techniques, any rules, three point step to listening yeah. that you learn. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, listen to them and reflect back what you think they're saying so that you know if it is right or not. Like that, that's a key thing. Like I hear you saying that, um, you know, you're upset. Um, you don't think that you can fix this and you want to do such and such. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like the, a really important step. The other step is to 
practice empathy skills. And some people just may not have empathy skills. And I think a lot of people were cut just because of that. Yeah. Um, and that is, can you psychologically put yourself in their shoes, you know? Mm. Um, and then another one that I use that is loosely related to listening is sometimes when, when you have a caller and they're really down, um, it was almost like a shock technique. So um, if they, you know, were drunk or they were going to take pills or, um, and they're talking about it lethargically, you would shock them and tell them what really happens when they take the pills. It's not a peaceful death. You don't just take the pills and like, ah, and you slowly drift off, you know, um, you're right. going to defecate, you're going to urinate, you're pro- you might vomit and choke on it. This is how they're going to find you. It's not that. So I think even with, um, especially with book clients, often I have to shake them up and shock them to get an idea out or to, to help them get rid of a stubborn idea. Um, With certain, I work with clients um, on that storytelling branding side that can sometimes be divas. Yeah, sure. Because (laughs) they have reached the pinnacle of their careers and maybe now they're on the downside trying to come back up Mm -hmm. and they're frustrated and they've they've made, you know, they have fees where they've made a million dollars or $4 million or whatever a project. Mm. And so they can be, uh, they can be assholes. So um, <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> honest, and um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's uh, where I think. And you know, I always think because sometimes they'll treat you badly. Sure. And they're like, "Well, if you want the money, then you'll just do it the way I say, or you'll just write it the way I say, or you'll just do whatever it is the way." Yeah. And you're gonna have to bleep this out, but sure. my response is always like, "Fuck you." Um, I don't work for money. I just don't. Otherwise, my life would be really, I don't arrange my, my life that way. I work because I have fun right. at it and it's challenging and it's rewarding. And there's, you know, in, not monetarily. Every time I've done that and I've, I've gone into just a litany of like telling them what babies they are. And, you know, if you were, if you were my friend, I'd slap you, I blah, blah, blah. And you know what? Every single time I've done that, they come, they're just like, okay, I have to work with you. Because no one, you know, they've often fired a few people before me to right. get to me. Okay. No one will t- tell them the truth. No one will stand up to them because they pay them so much, they figure, that they just won't do it. Yeah. And so it's, it's actually really good for them to work with someone who will be totally honest you know, because then the better product comes about or better career. Sure. Because I'm not just telling them what they want to hear. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, along that vein, getting past no or getting to yes, are there techniques you have mm-hmm. in negotiating or decisions you make when to drop a point or push a point or gut instincts or any of that kind of thing? You know, I wasn't so good at that uh, for myself. So I actually went to these life coaches in LA. They did a, a group life coach thing with um, eight women every week. Um, it was called Get Up Girl. And it was, it's Shannon Bindler and Marguerite Ward. They'd be interesting to talk to. They, they coach separately now. Yeah, they would. Um, but 
You know, I found that in Hollywood, I was doing a lot of work for free. I was pitching for free and writing up synopses and, and um, just doing a lot of that. I was, I was tired of it. And I wouldn't have been able to survive. That's why I switched to books and magazines too. I just needed to make more income faster. And finally, they got me to the point where I realized I was going to draw a line in the sand and not work for free anymore, that I was past that point. I wasn't in grad school anymore, and um, I had the skills and the talent to, to do that. So I had published Pornology, my book, and Affirmative Entertainment, and 19 Entertainment, which is Simon Fuller's company. Um, he started... Uh, American Idol, which started first as the British version, right. um, they both wanted to option the book to make into a movie. And I said, and they wanted it for free. This is very common in Hollywood. Hey, can we get a free option? We have this. We've got 19 Entertainment, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, sorry, I just made a rule and I won't option anything for free. Right. And then I they, they, they paid for it and they paid a lot of money. I was like, oh my God, that's all I had to do is <laughs> ask. You know, and, and make a rule and believe in myself. And that's what I did. And I've kept that rule. And it has helped several other times. And now I can actually even use, you know, raise the bar for the money because you don't go backwards, right? The rule is, right. I was like, well, I, you know, here's my option rate. I don't want to go under that anymore, yeah. you know. And you don't. That's, yeah, uh, how have you gotten better at asking questions? How have your questions gotten um, better? Let's see. I think before I was afraid to sound like I might not know what I'm talking about. And now I'm, I'm much more confident and I'm trying to learn about producing because Bradley and I are trying to produce some projects together. Yeah. So I will say like, Hey, you know, I really want to learn this. Can I ask you? And I find that, um, especially producers find that flattering yeah. and refreshing, yeah. right? Yeah. I want you to mentor me in a way is what you're saying, right? I believe in you and what you've done. Can you share the wisdom? Um, so I will ask more questions than I ever did, but I'm also still, I like to research it first. I feel more comfortable mm. even asking when I've at least done some research. And I find when people come to me for mentoring a lot, I kind of get a little impatient when they ask me really basic questions that I know they could have Googled. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah that's... Uh... That's uh, yeah. We're gonna talk. I want to talk about like where you're headed from this moment in time. Okay. But let's get okay. up. Let's get up to this moment in time. Um, psychology, and then getting your master's um, in oh. education and social policy. That was a uh, still not really yeah. thinking about entertainment at that point. No, I mean, I at UCLA, you know, the other thing I did besides Helpline was I volunteered every Friday at, um, it was a prison camp in the Malibu Hills for incarcerated youth. And they were 16 yes. and under, but yeah, most of them had uh, either committed murder or been an accessory to murder. You have to remember it was, you know, around 1986 and it was the Crips and the Bloods, where that was a big thing, you right. know, gang warfare. A lot of these kids were caught up in that, and that's why they were in prison. Yeah. Um, we did a little survey. 95% of them did not have fathers in the picture. Hmm. Um, you know, probably 90% of them at the time were African-American, uh, Latino. I think there was one white kid, you know, that um, we would tutor. So there was a busload of us that would go up this winding mountain road, and we'd go in and we tutored them on, you know, reading. A lot of them 
couldn't read, even though they were already 14 to 16, they just got lost and they were embarrassed to tell people and the, their parents might not be able to read either. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed inspiring people, which is kind of still what I enjoy now, like taking yeah. someone and helping them be better at whatever they need to be better at. And those kids really excelled quickly when they had one-on-one -on -one tutoring and it was really fun. They'd always, man, they'd write rap songs for us. They could do it on the fly. Yeah. That's what, uh, you know, it was of the times and that's what they did. And, right. um, and it was so cool. Um, I really liked hanging out with those kids and seeing a difference. Yeah. What was the, what was the effects of circumstance that you saw on these, on these kids and what yeah. did, it, yeah, what did, yeah, what comes to mind? I remember one kid I worked with, he was African-American, really sweet. We actually wrote letters to each other for a while. And he had, his dad disappeared. His mom had many kids um, and his brother was in the gang. And I can't remember the specifics. It was so long ago, but I remember it was just that, well, his brother was in it. So he had to be in it. You know, it's like there was no alternative that they could see. Right. It seems easy for us. And we see movies where like, oh, just stand up. And, you know, um, no, it's, you can't do that in some situations you know that would be hard in an army barracks for yeah. adults it would be hard in i think in south central la you know in certain cultures um they couldn't do that they didn't have any other way out in the schools at that time um you know didn't know how to deal with that and weren't great what was this transition for you into you know screenwriting and wanting to go get a, another master's yeah. <laughs> in entertainment why well, the transition I I didn't know anybody in entertainment and I didn't even know they were, I wasn't conscious that there were people who wrote movies and TV shows. And I just, I, I was doing with those kids and I just thought, well, I'm going to go into education. Mm. Um, and so I applied to Harvard's grad school in education because they were the best at the time. And I was like, I'm going to be secretary of education mm. of the United States. So I'm like, I'm yeah. going for it and had some really interesting models that I created for schools. And slowly I realized like, oh man, my ideas are way too radical for the school system. Um, and then my boyfriend at the time was going to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, their film program. And so every Friday I'd drive down to New York City and I'd sit in on his classes and I'd help him and his buddies um, make short films. And I slowly realized, I'm like, oh, my God, you can go to school for this? You know, right. Chinese parents and Mexican-American don't tell you, like, you can go into movie making. Um, yeah. I was like, oh, God, this is so fun. And I love the education thing. But I think I want to give this a try before I dedicate myself to education. And I kind of figured the whole education psychology thing would always be helpful because I always imagined myself being a mom in later years. Mm. So I applied to um, the UCLA graduate film uh, program, which is super back then for sure, super competitive. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to stay in LA because I'd gone to New York and Boston. I was like, Oh my God, this is friggin' freezing. Yeah. I cannot survive here. You're like, Nope. <laughs> um, no, yeah. no. And I miss um, ethnic food that I couldn't find there. So um, but I didn't get in. They waitlisted me. 
and I was kind of shocked because I, I wrote a really good thing. And, yeah. and so, you know, I was like, wow, I'm probably not going to get in. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write them a letter. Huh. And so I wrote a really compelling letter that told them they would not regret me coming in and that I doubt they probably had someone that had my point of view, multicultural point of view. I've been around the world. Here's what I know. And um, it was interesting because once I did get in and when I did, there were two other people who also were waitlisted like me and wrote a letter. The three of us were probably three of the most successful students they'd had. We definitely had more fellowships after year one. And I think it meant because we were feisty and, you know, we didn't take no for an answer because then they, so they, once you send in that letter, then they call you in for an interview. Oh my God. I I don't know how anyone could have gotten through that interview, but I lucked out. I swear this was just serendipitous. They asked me about Truffaut. Um, They asked me about, um, oh, they said, oh, Enrique Ibsen, have you read anything? I swear, just that summer, I had been into a binge of Enrique Ibsen, and I read um, The Doll's House and The Children's House, so I was able to say, yeah, and rattle off, and I just read Truffaut and Hitchcock, a book on them, and they were, so it was almost as if they were making it so hard, who could ever have gotten through that? Right. But somehow, I think because I read a lot, I got kind of lucky in that interview. Was that like a kismet moment for you? Were you like, oh my God, this is life happening for uh, me? <laughs> you know what? It was more, I was, it was more like, yeah, good thing you read, Anne. You know, my yeah. parents brought us up to read a lot. Right. And it's been helpful. Did anyone at that college come up to you and talk to you specifically about the letter you wrote and your determination or any of that? It was never really talked about. Never, never. And, um, yeah, even the one of them who interviewed me was ended up being uh, the teacher. I mean, they were always supportive. They're very supportive there. But yeah, we never talked about that. What's the first thing you ever wrote? Story or anything? What's the first piece? Yeah, I adapted a um, Spanish play uh, about the character Death, who is a pilgrim in this play, who um, decides to be a regular woman for a few days. And um, she takes over the the body of someone who she's killing, taking because she's dead. And she falls in love and she understands humans uh, more than she ever did, which makes her job harder later. Right. Adapted that into a feature. Okay. So after college, and I'm not going to make you rattle off your resume, you're doing doing writing, taking credit for it. You're doing ghostwriting. You're working for different networks, television. You're also working on films. You have this book that we're going to get to. What, were you just taking the opportunities that that came or was this, you know, all kind of guided? It was kind of a hustle. Those first WGA credits came right out of film school. Um, I was trying to produce a couple of um, feature scripts. It's interesting because one of them that I wrote then, right after film school, Bradley and I um, are um, producing right now, trying to produce right now. So we're developing it. We actually are going to be meeting later today to talk about it and to give notes. Um, And that was a great script. It was a sci-fi script and it, it got me and my writing partner at the time, who is now my husband, 
Um, we got meetings with John Wu. That project was greenlit at Showtime before um, Greenblatt came and replaced the old CEO and they cleared everything off the slate, which was one of our projects. So we got close with a lot of things and we wrote some things. Uh, there was, well, it's been a long time, so I think I can say, and I know some people passed away on the project, but um, we wrote for a TV show. Our script we wrote was really good and I was really proud of it. And we won a um, Writers Guild of Canada nomination against X-Files for it. But then when I saw what they filmed and what they were going to show, they had changed it so much because the show didn't get a second or third season. So they had to wrap it up in, in the first season. And so they changed our script. It was so bad that I decided we didn't tell anyone about it. We didn't even tell our friends it was gonna air because it was just, they made so many changes, it was awful. And that was my first lesson that in filmmaking, yeah. you know, you write something that's precious, but then a showrunner comes on and changes it. Then a director, um, the set designer or locations person might not be able to get those things you wrote. So that changes. And then casting, the actor was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> we no. literally told nobody. I wish, I mean, yeah, we literally told nobody because um, we weren't proud of it. Has that happened a lot? Not a lot, but has it happened again no, since? Or that was a one? No, because we, we just did those first two. And then yeah. after a while, we were like, oh my God, we can't, you know, we were ma- hardly making any money. We would make money one year, none the next. And we were like, we can't keep doing this if we want to start a family, you know? So that's when I switched to writing the book and magazines. Okay. And so that's kind of how I got there. And is that what preempted uh, Pornology, the book? Exactly. I I was going to write an article. I forget the name of it, but I brought it to my writer's group and they're like, oh, this is a whole book. And I was like, oh, is it? <laughs> and then I realized they're right. Yeah. yeah. How, how long did it take? So, yeah, that's uh, to write pornology. Yeah. Well, I sold the concept pretty quick. So okay. they only gave me six months by okay. contract. Usually you get a year, but they thought it was so high concept. They wanted to get it out quickly. Sure. So I, I had to do research and write it in, in basically six months. I had drafted an outline before that to pitch it. You know, when you write nonfiction books, you write a book proposal. Even if you're a big celebrity, you still have to turn in a book proposal first. Right. And that tells everyone what your book's about, what the market for it is, and your approach, and then one sample chapter from it. Yeah. So I sold that first. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 